we will just dive right into Romans chapter 4. Yay, new chapter. We are making so much progress. Doesn't feel like we've been in here this long, does it? Paul is moving into the explanatory portion of the program. So, you have a foundation established. You have your hopes rightly placed in Christ. You know what is wrong with the world. You know how Christ makes you right in the world. Notice how you won't be right with the world because the world is not right yet. So, now comes in the objections because, you know, humanity gets told something and goes, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, we got that. No questions whatsoever. That's, has that ever happened once ever in human history? Mm -mm. Not even a little bit. So all the walks of life are going to have questions. And what's funny to me about Romans and why I've been looking forward to this and why this is so much fun is because, and the reason, one of the reasons we can take the chunks like we can here is we're going to start dealing with some of the ethnic objections today. And then they're going to come back in a few weeks. And then they're going to come back again in a few weeks after that. So you know what that means for me? I don't have to cover every single aspect of it in this one week because it's coming back around again, which again is also one of the reasons why I like going through the Bible like we do, section by section, verse by verse. Because if you keep doing that, you're eventually going to cover everything. May not be exactly when you want me to cover it, may not be what I would have covered that day, but that's a good thing. You don't want what's in my head. You want what's in God's Word. So let's go through it systematically and make sense of it. So, warning... We're going to deal with one of these objections twice today. So we're going to hit it real quick, and then it's going to come back around. I will try to warn you about that so that you don't go, it's coming back around again. And again, when we get to the end of this, another warning. We are officially at the place in Romans. There is no good place to stop. There's There's just no good place to stop. So unless you want to go until Thursday... We have to just cut it off somewhere and then pick it up again next week, okay? And that's going to be the case from now through, like, the end of the year. (laughs) So you have been warned that's just what's going to happen. You're going to be like, I don't think the thought was completely finished there. It wasn't, but I'm hungry, and and I got to eat lunch at some point, and, like, you have kids that you have to go feed and stuff like that, so we move on with our lives. So with all of that said, let's dive in, shall we? All right, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? So remember, all of chapter 3 is basically the rundown of the Jews and the Gentiles and the understanding of how the law functions for both the Jews and the Gentiles. With all of that, I'm not going to rehash all that. You can go back and find it on YouTube or something. It'll do you good. So now we're dealing with Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh. Now pause right there because Abraham is the father of Israel physically. And that matters. It just doesn't matter as much as they thought it did. And one of my favorite little sections of the New Testament is the reminder to the people of that in Luke 3. So John began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, if you're Israel, you have a problem. Abraham is your father physically, but he is not always the father of your people spiritually. Now, if that is the case, and I think the entire reading of the Old and New Testament would support that that is the case for Israel, then one very important question should be asked. Why? 
Why is that distinction there? Why is Abraham the father physically, but he is not the father spiritually? And I'm glad we've asked that question because we continued verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. See, this is the distinction in action and the problem that separates the modern Israel, well, the the Israel of Jesus' day, from the Abraham of faith. So if you go back to last week, we know that there's no boasting. Where then is boasting? Romans 3.27. It is excluded, and we know why there is no boasting. You read the rest of that verse. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. And if you want to put that idea in completion, Paul summarizes it well in the mini version of Romans, which is Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Which, by the way, Bible reading tip for you. Ephesians is one of Paul's prison letters. It's basically to a church that he has not been to before to summarize the Christian faith and encourage them. Um, Romans is a non-prison epistle written to a church Paul has never been before to basically summarize the faith and encourage them. But since Romans is written first, Paul doesn't have to go through 16 chapters to get through Ephesians. So if you ever want to give yourself a good little fun study, before you dive in to read Romans at home, read Ephesians. It's six chapters, it covers a lot of the same ground, it skips a lot of the ground, but it covers a lot of the same topics and it'll give you a simple foundation by which to understand. And then, with the understanding of Ephesians, go back and read Romans. And it's like reading the, it's like like when you're in high school and you got the Cliff Notes version of the book, that's Ephesians for Romans. And then when you're an adult, you're going, you know, I should probably actually read that. And then you said, that's that's how you should do it. Read Ephesians and then go back and read Romans, it'll do you good. So, there you go. (laughs) Now, If, however, you are a good worldly Christian, which that's a sentence that should never be uttered. There are no good worldly Christians, right? You, or if you've watched too much History Channel or National Geographic Channel. See, my life was so much easier before National Geographic Channel was a thing because all of those bad Easter and Christmas specials were on the History Channel. And they were all covered by that one cable network and life was simple. And then they had to start a whole other channel based off a magazine and then they moved all those Bible specials to that channel. And so now I have to say the History Channel or the National Geographic Channel. And that probably doesn't even cover all of them anymore. So if you've watched television... <laughs> and you have seen a worldly presentation on Jesus around Easter or Christmas, you would probably have a question right now because Paul, for the better part of a chapter, has been hammering this lack of law living. And if you have read your New Testament, you would go, but doesn't that create a problem with the guy who wrote before him? So trivia questions. We've already told you some of Paul's letters written before Romans. So uh, Galatians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Um, Who else has written before Paul? I thought I heard it. Say it loud. James. John's after Paul. The other one, James. James chapter 2. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? See, isn't that a contradiction with everything that Paul is doing in Romans? Let me give you the short answer. No. (laughs) Now let me give you the long answer. James's book begins, and we've gone through this, you can go back and find it if you'd like, but James's letter begins with an exhortation of trust in God. I've warned you this when you read it, or when we went through it, so I'll warn you this now if you go back and read it. When you read wisdom in the book of James, your brain should just condition yourself to think sanctification, because what is the goal of wisdom? 
the fear of the Lord and the trust in him. So when you read wisdom in the book of James, you should just automatically go, that's being sanctified. Well, who, 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 I'm an owl now, who is being sanctified? Is everyone being sanctified? No, so who is being sanctified? I gotta stop doing that. Christians, believers are being sanctified. So James assumes what? Because he's writing to Christians facing persecution, because let's be honest, if you're a non-Christian hanging out with the Christian church and the persecution from the Romans comes, what are you not going to be doing anymore? Are you going to continue hanging around with the Christians? Be like, you mean you people get killed at these meetings? Good Lord, I'm out of here. What is wrong with you, man? <laughs> so yeah, separating the wheat from the chaff quite quickly when persecution comes. James is writing because persecution has come. The other James, the brother of John, has been executed by Herod, and Jewish persecution in and around Jerusalem and Judea has broken out. He's trying to encourage the church on how they should remain faithful. The best way for them to remain faithful is to focus on their sanctification. Wisdom for James is sanctification. Now here's where that's important. Sanctification produces something. It is your faith in action. It's actually the fruit of your life. So when James is writing about the fruit that your salvation produces, that starts with what? A salvation to produce fruit. James is giving you the value of a relationship built on God. That's why he can say, someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons believe and shudder. So you can sit there and say, I have faith, but it has produced nothing in me. Well, that's demonic faith. The demons can sit around and give you a good theological premise. They don't have any sanctification because they have no salvation. James's proof of his salvation is the fact that his tree is now producing good fruit. There is no conflict here. Paul's just not there yet. Paul's going to get there in the second part of this book, but that's going to be like next year, so you've been warned. <laughs> Always remember chapter 12 of Romans starts with a therefore, and that therefore is basically the entirety of the previous 11 chapters. So it's going to take a while to build up to that, all right? But we will get there. It's just going to be slow. Paul doesn't get there yet because he's still building your foundation, answering objections, and encouraging you to understand Christ rightly. Only after you have understood Christ rightly do you understand your salvation rightly. Only after you have understood your salvation rightly can you possibly have any hope of sanctification. This parents would be a good encouragement for you with your children. Be like, why aren't they behaving better? Well, because let's be honest. What do the little pagans do? <laughs> what should you do? Attack the heart. Remind them of the gospel preach it every chance you get, and encourage them in the faith, because that's what changes people. Now, more on this, we will come back to it, but instead, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is the seminal declaration of righteousness by faith by God. So God saving people by grace through faith. It is a quote of Genesis 15, 6, and Abraham believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, here's the really fun part. Is that the first place where humanity in the Old Testament is saved by grace through faith? No. I will pause and not torture you the rest. You'll have that song stuck in your head, which I had to do that because I've, I've had that, I made a joke this morning about the Days of Elijah song and I've had that song stuck in my head now ever since then. And <laughs> it's a terrible thing when you're trying to think through things and the back of your brain is just going, behold, he comes riding on the clouds. It's like, stop it. <laughs> I can't even think. I have a hard enough time. <laughs> 
So you're welcome now, because that'll be stuck in your head. You'll be sitting there at lunch going, <laughs> no, I would argue Genesis 3 is a great picture of that, but I don't think it's a good declaration of that. Genesis 4 gives you a really good declaration, though. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Why would they do that? Because he is their God and they are his people. Why? Because of the lesson as a, in standing in opposition to the life of Cain and the lesson that Adam and Eve actually learned in the garden when God covers their sin by covering their nakedness. You also see things like Genesis 6. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Because Noah was just such an awesome dude, right? Kids were amazing, had faith like an oak tree, you know, just the unmovable man. Now, Noah got off the boat and said what? I need a drink. <laughs> Now, in his defense, were I Noah, I'm not sure I'd be arguing with him. <laughs> I mean, I always joke about people like they've seen some things. Noah has seen some things. I get it. Does it make Noah being plastered to the point that he's passed out and non-functional right? No. Did he do such an amazing job of discipling his children during the flood that they got off the boat and went, our father is in this miserable and wretched estate. We shall not sin against the Lord in this way and we shall honor him. No, we don't even know what the kid did, but we just know it was really, really bad that he was cursed to the third generation, okay? So, leave that as you may. This is not a family that has done wonderful things and yet they are the chosen family of God. This is what it looks like to find grace. And now I have that. Oh, it's... um. I got this wrong before. What state is it? Is it Tennessee? Is it Tennessee Williams? Is that the guy's name? Yeah. That, that's, that, I always have that song. Noah found, face in the, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he landed high and dry. <laughs> Saw that once in one of those Gaither specials, and it just won't leave my brain either. And just sitting there clapping and stomping the foot, and it's the whole nine yards. And now you two have been tortured by it as well. So these are some of the initial declarations. Now, I, the, why do I point this out? I point these things out because this helps undo, one, this idea that Paul and James stand in opposition to each other, because it undoes the idea that the Old and New Testament stand in opposition to each other. You have one salvation in your Bible because you have one message of God in your Bible. Always remember, what's the answer when you get to the end of your Bible? Okay, when you don't know what to say, there's another song for you. <laughs> exactly. You have one salvation, a salvation by grace, through faith, in the work of Christ, uh, Theologically speaking, in the Old Testament, we refer to it as being saved on credit because the work of Christ has not been accomplished in the world. But always remember the declaration that Revelation gives you is that Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. This is one of those things that blew my mind once. Somebody was drawing it on a dry erase board and hang on. As a seminary student, and I'm still, I think through this, and I try to explain it, and I still don't understand it, so have fun with this. I will explain to you something I don't understand. Isn't that always the best way to do it? <laughs> Is you have to imagine the human timeline, and you live in 2023, and you understand that there was an 1845, but to God, there is no distinction. So like 1845 is not different from 2023 because he stands outside of time. Now, spend the rest of your afternoon thinking about that. And then you will sit there and go, you know what I'd rather think about? Behold, he comes. <laughs> You're like, I just want the simple parts. <laughs> My head hurts. Now, 
why do I remind you of that? Because before God creates, Christ will save. Before God creates, Christ will redeem and he will cover and he will bear the penalty for his people. That is how Old Testament saints are saved. As far as God is concerned, it hasn't happened in your timeline yet, Abraham, but it's done. (laughs) Because God is not in your timeline. Again, you think about that for the rest of the afternoon. Take two ibuprofen and then, you know, stop thinking about it, all right? Now, once again, the reason why that's so important is this helps explain why there's no distinction between what Paul is teaching and what James is teaching. So let's go back to James for a second. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works and as a result of the works faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Why is Abraham, and by the way, if you haven't figured out the answer to next week's trivia question by now, for shame, for shame, okay? Why is Abraham willing to take Isaac up the mountain? Why is he willing to do this? We have the fire, we have the wood, but where's the offering? The Lord will provide. And why does Hebrews remind you? Abraham believed what? That if needed, God would raise him from the dead. This is just what faith looks like. I'm not giving up anything because there's nothing here to be given up because all is from God and all is for God. This is faith perfected in action. And that's what James is talking about. Again, sanctification. You have to have a faith in order for your faith to be perfected. And faith, if it is actual valid faith, produces something. This is one of the reasons why I always remind you when you look at your life and when you sit there and you have your doubts about your salvation, don't sit there and go, well, when was I baptized and what song were they playing and what Bible verses do I love the most? No, look at your life. Where are you now? Where were you 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago? However far back you can go. Now let's look. Are we moving in the right direction? Yes. Is it as far as you would like? Probably not. Have you moved? Rejoice. This is the hope. This is the sanctification in action. You're producing fruit. Now, if you look at your life and go, but I could produce better fruit, I'm not going to argue with you. What should you do now? Rest upon the completed work of Christ, serve him, and what will happen to the fruit? It's amazing how, as you just focus on following Christ and serving him and building up his kingdom, you know what's going to happen to the fruit? It's just going to produce. It's just going to be there. Now, again, it may not be what you think it's supposed to be. Not everybody's Billy Graham, okay? Just get over that idea. I've told you this before. You have to be you in Christ. Because you trying to be somebody else is going to be an absolute train wreck. An utter train wreck. You aren't them. They aren't you. Thanks be to God. You don't have my brain. You should be very, very thankful about that. You have bad evangelical songs stuck in the back of your head for no good reason. So you have to be you in your world, in your life, serving God how he has gifted you. Some of you are great prayers. Some of you are great teachers. Some of you are people who can think through problems and give advice. Some of you can just do stuff. You know, there's a valid energy and accomplishment in just being able to do stuff because there's coming a day when guess what happens? We all go, hmm, I can't do anything anymore. Which, by the way, that's intentional. and We won't go over that one again, but... Like, I'm able to show up and help with things. Great, show up and help with things. That's part of how you serve. It's a blessing. You can listen to people. You can give people advice. Some of you can give. Some of you can pray. There's 
there's something. Think through your life. What do you have? What are you good at? How do you, how do you leverage that for the kingdom of God? And then as the great uh, prophet Yosemite Sam said, Yamul, and get about doing the work of the kingdom. Now, verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. Now, if you have a job, you understand this concept. You don't go to work, work your 40 or however many hours you work during the week, and then you get your paycheck at the end of the week and go, oh, thank you, blessed one, for providing me this wonderful gift. When the paycheck is not there, you say what? Where's my money? <laughs> don't make me start making phone calls. I work. You pay, that's how this works. Because trust me, you ever want to see an annoyed human being? Short them like two hours on a paycheck. I used to work in restaurant business. Uh, feels like another lifetime ago. You will find all the interesting people in humanity in restaurant work. If you've never been around restaurants behind the scenes, restaurant people can be very interesting. Like I, I, I've worked with people who could not work sober. Like when they showed up to work sober, it's like, what's wrong with you, man? And then they'd show up high the next day and be like, oh, I was unaware. I thought it was the other way around. No, 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 no. That's just interesting people. It can barely count, can barely read, know how many hours they worked to the minute. That paycheck is off by 20 minutes. You know where they are? Hey, 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 right here. I can do this math. <laughs> You know what you're due. You know what you're owed. That's not what work is giving you. The sad part in humanity when it relates to this is we all work. We just all have a really bad habit of working for the wrong thing. Romans 6. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now again, this is not a new idea in this book. If you rewind to the beginning of chapter 2, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. In other words, what you've worked for and what you're due. In the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. Now, this is one of those places where the punctuation actually doesn't help us. Paul gave us a sentence when he shouldn't have. So at the end of verse 4, you should be saying, wait, there's more. And that more is in verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, this is an important distinction between work and faith. And before we make it, i got to give you a Bible verse that you should keep in the back of your head. John 19. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, pastors and Bible teachers love to do that thing where they go, now the word finished there, in the Greek it means, okay, this is an easy one, because you know what the word finished means? It means finished, complete, accomplished. There's nothing else to do. Don't you love it when it's like that? <laughs> now, if there's nothing left to do, then what are you supposed to be working for? Like, do you go to a job and be like, it's like, if you actually have to work for a living, do you show up and be like, job's done, what do you guys want to keep doing? <laughs> no, when the job's done, we do what? We go home. <laughs> we'll go home, they'll pay us, and everyone will be happy. Now, when it comes to the Christian life, here's your spoiler alert. It is finished. Hebrews 1. 
God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, talking about the Son, is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he, the Son, had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Like I, years ago, I had a youth group, and we were uh, we went to one of the Baptist children's homes in our state because the children's home had um, somehow or another going back far enough when they purchased the land to build the children's homes. This massive plot of forested land came with it, and it was um, basically farm pine trees and. Once upon a time, they would do what most people in North Carolina do with a plot like that is you would clean up the grove, let the pine trees grow to a certain height, and then the paper mill or whoever would come in, cut them down, replant them, pay you for the lumber, and then, you know, 20 years later, you'll see them again when the trees are big enough. The children's home figured they had better return on their investment. They cleaned out the grove, and then landscapers and contractors would come in and scrape out the pine straw and pay them for it. And over time, that was a better investment for them. Less, you know, less lump sum, more steady income. The problem with that is, over time, the churches in the area had stopped working on the pine grove, which means lots of dead trees, lots of overgrowth, which means the pine straw wasn't good. So they were getting less money because they didn't have as much pine straw. So we got a group together because I actually had loggers in my church. So we got a group together, go down to the, to the home and go clean this up so they would get better investment, better pine straw. Make sense? One of the guys that came with us, I kid you not, was in his 80s. And he put on a backpack saw. I didn't know there was such a thing. Imagine a weed eater on steroids. It's basically a, um, a gas-powered backpack, and it connects to a two-handled blade about this big on the front, and you run it like a weed eater. And like you can chop up small trees and things, and you just, you just kind of go through, and in between this grove of trees, he would go through and clean out dead stuff. Man's 82 years old, just going. We started at 8 o'clock in the morning. It's about one o'clock in the afternoon. My teenagers are coming up to me. You know how teenagers do. Can we sit down? Go look. You see the 82-year-old man? When Connie sits down, you can sit down. Until then, I don't want to hear it. Go work. <laughs> now, the funny part was that worked for them because they were all scared to death of the man because, again, he's 82 years old and he's out working them, you know, laps. And he just all day, just... We, it was time to go home when four o'clock hit. Connie undid that backpack and sat on a stump. We can leave now. <laughs> That's a man. You'd be like, my work is done. I am sitting down before God because I got nothing left to worry about. That's what Jesus has done. We're worried about who we sit down in front of in this world. Uh oh. <laughs> Was it that bad? Or did I get an amen? I'm going to count that as an amen. <laughs> Imagine Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the Father because it is finished. That's the import of that. The work is accomplished. There's nothing for you to work for because of what Christ has done. And now as example of that, because you notice that's not a period, that is a comma there in verse 5, if you can see that far. That was a problem I was having this morning trying to read as my eyes wouldn't focus. So verse 6 builds on this point. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Now we're going to pause here because you can see the, uh, you can see the colon there. David is going to get quoted, but before David gets quoted, realize how important this is for Paul. He's making an argument about salvation by grace 
through faith so that you don't have to work for accomplishing anything. And his proof text is found in which testament? The Old Testament. Because what is salvation in the Old Testament? By grace, through faith, in the accomplished, completed work of God. And that's what's so important because, again, things like Isaiah 55. So, my, so will be my word which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So God gives Isaiah the prophet a promise about his word accomplishing everything that it's supposed to. If only we had a New Testament passage that like equated Jesus with the word of God. Wouldn't that just be so helpful? <laughs> For those of you that don't know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John 1.1. 1, 1. Read John, it'll do you good. So I just like to have a little fun sometimes. So let's get to the David quote, shall we? Verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Into verse 8. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So this is a quote of Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2. Now, if you read that and you are not entirely certain, because again, the Roman church may not have been entirely certain, you should have one very important question. Yes, yes, yes. Blessed is he whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sin has been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. But David, imagine sitting in the throne of, in the court of David as this psalm is being read. How, David? How, man? Tell me, how do I accomplish such a thing? I got a novel idea for you. You ready for it? Keep reading Psalm 32. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with, as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. In other words, where did David find this covering for his sin? In God. Where did he find forgiveness? In God. What did he have to do? Did I have to go do some great thing? No. I call out to God in my distress, and he delivers me. You can actually see this lesson with people who actually do the work. So like Naaman the leper comes to Elisha for healing. What does Elisha tell him to go do? Go, go dunk yourself in the, in the, in the river seven times. Have you seen that river? Like, let's be honest. For those of you that live in the 21st century and know what clean water looks like, have you ever looked at the river and been like sparkling and pristine and clean and wonderful? I shall bathe there. <laughs> no, because you know what that's like. Well, even Naaman's like, I'm not getting in that stinking filthy river. What's his servant remind him of? If he had given you some great task to accomplish, like, you know, go and slay some giant or something, what would you have done? Be like, I got this. Give me something important to do. No, no, no. You get to go menial task. Go wash in the dirty river. Who cleansed you? God did. What did you bring to it? <laughs> Nothing. That's the point. That's what David's reminding. This is the history of Israel. This is the history of your Old Testament. Is God redeeming a people many times regardless of where they're from and who they are, which again is probably the most important part for you New Testament saints because this is the message we carry into the world. You leave the baggage of, the, of your life in Christ, before Christ behind. We don't care who you were. We don't care what you did. My goodness, pick a sin. 
Seriously, pick a sin. I guarantee you can find it in the people of God. You'd be like, well, I'm an evil, hateful murderer. <laughs> let me find Paul and David for you. Let's see, what else you got? What else you got? Well, my family's a little broken up. Oh, let me tell you about Judah, Perez, and how that whole family line comes about. Would you like to hear about that one? Well, you don't know what I did before I was married. Well, would you like to go talk about, like, um, oh, I don't know, Rahab? What do you think you got? Well, you know, I haven't always been the most faithful of people. Let's talk about David and Bathsheba some more. I mean, come on, pick one. You name the sin, we got it somewhere. And yet, or as Romans would put it, but God. This is the reminder of the life before Christ. This is the hope that God is instilling in his people. And we miss it. The world misses it. Why? Because it's almost like they're blind and they don't have eyes to see and ears to hear. And this is why those calls in the New Testament are so important and why you attack the heart. You can't change their mind. You can't argue them in. You can't rationalize it away. You can't. You have to proclaim Christ and him crucified because that is what changes the hearts and minds of men. Verse 9. Now, time to get fun because Paul's still answering objections. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? Now, based on everything I just said, your answer should be on the uncircumcised also. For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Now, we're going to answer Paul's, we're going to give Paul's answer in just a second. But first, just in case you've fallen asleep on me, which I I can see you. um, What is the blessing? Galatians 3. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. That goes back to Genesis 12. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Now, Paul's going to make that point in Romans again by going to verse 10. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And I'm sure you're tired of me saying the word circumcised, so let me just give you the math lesson. You ready? Declaration of grace by faith. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness is Genesis 15. Abraham given the sign of circumcision is Genesis 17. Now, I know I am a history person and not a math person, but I do know that 17 comes after 15. So the stuff that happens in 17 is the stuff that occurs after what happens in 15. This is the sign of Abraham's faith. This is the sign in the flesh, the outward sign of an inward reality. And before you get hung up on that, Christian, let me rephrase that. Before you get hung up on that, Baptist, (laughs) we have this. What is it? We just did it a few weeks ago. You've seen it, you know, buried with him in death. I got to get my hands right because I'm not left-handed. Buried with him in death, raised to walk in the innocent life. Why do we do this? Because it is an outward demonstration of an accomplished inward reality. This is one of the reasons we don't treat it trivially, why we don't put things like fire trucks on the baptistry, which churches have done and annoys me to no end. But anyway, (laughs) yeah, they have a little slide for the kids and everything. It's like a mini water park in the baptistry. (laughs) Matt was there Wednesday when we talked about it. He'll fill you in. That was, there's that. What was the church that was doing? My favorite was they grabbed the kiddie pools and started going to the mall so they could have spontaneous baptisms. And they'd fill the kiddie pools up and then they'd have a plant in the crowd so that they'd call people to come forth and have faith in Christ and be baptized. And like the plant would come out and then like that would get people to come with them because, you know, we're all sheep. <laughs> yeah. 
Why don't we treat it trivially? Because it's actually supposed to be demonstrating an inward truth. That's what circumcision was to the Old Testament. Oh, I'm an Israelite. I am the covenant chosen people of God. How do you know? I have partaken of circumcision. That doesn't mean anything. That's an outward symbol. Where's the inward reality, believer? That's what's more important. That's the key thing moving forward. That's the argument Paul is building on right here. That's why it continues, verse 11. And he, this is talking about Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believed without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. Now, the reason why I make the point that I make about not being a new thing and not being the the circumcision being the most important thing is because, again, this is supposed to demonstrate something for the people of God about their God. So go to the law. If you had to pick the law books, what are the, what are the two books nobody reads in, in, in the Old Testament? Well, yeah, nobody reads Leviticus. And then let's be honest with you. How many of you are chomping at the bit for Deuteronomy? Like, it's a speech by Moses. You're like, oh, haven't I had enough lectures yet, Dad? <laughs> Aren't we done with this one yet? No, no. Nobody's chomping at the bit. Read Deuteronomy. It will do you good. There's lots of really good stuff in there. Things like this. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is to this day. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. See, Moses is instructing them why. Because this is the next generation. The previous generation that came out of Egypt, who was circumcised in the wilderness, who saw the, who saw the, the plagues and the miracles against Egypt, who saw the parting of the sea, who received the manna from heaven originally, who saw the quail, who saw the mountain and the quaking and the fire and heard the voice of God. You know, watched Moses get mad and chuck the tablets at people. This group is gone. They have fallen in the wilderness because of their unwillingness to trust in God and claim the land that he has promised to them. So what do you have now? You now have the second generation. And Moses is going to send them into the land because Moses has sinned against God and he will not get to enter. What's the most important thing? We don't care. This was the group that came out and was circumcised. The problem was not in their flesh. The problem was in their hearts. So what's the most important thing for this second group? To make sure you nail all those commandments in Leviticus? To make sure you nail down that second half of Exodus so that the tabernacle is set up just like it's supposed to be? Now look, should you do that? Should you read Exodus? And if you're Israel going into the land, should you nail it when you set up the tabernacle? Make sure the poster are in the right place. Make sure it's hung up the right way. Don't nobody want to put the temple curtain up upside down, right? That would be a bad thing. Like you're getting fired that day from the work crew. They don't let you come back when you you put the Ark of the Covenant on upside down. This is a bad thing. Get that right, but realize that that's not what makes you the people of God. What makes you the people of God is your trust, not the circumcised flesh, but the circumcised heart. You're trusting in the finished work of God. You're trusting in the promises that he has given, and you're trusting that he is the one who has overcome your sin. And how do you know he can overcome your sin? Because look at the enemies he's overcome. He's conquered Egypt. He's conquered the wilderness. He's going to conquer the nations before you. He's going to secure you as a people. My goodness, people, what more do you want? That should have been the lesson, that if this God can accomplish that, he can accomplish the little things like actually redeeming little old me. And by the way, it's not just Moses. Jeremiah 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. 
Men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. This was the warning. Coming back to what? A change of heart. Where do I get this change heart? Because look, I've tried. I have tried. How many times have you woken up and said, today is the day I'm a better person. Today is the day I'm not going to do X, Y, or Z. And I'm sure you have something to fill in for X, Y, and Z. How'd that day go for you? (laughs) Go sit in the repentance corner. I'm sorry. Why not? Because you have no power. Because you have no righteousness. Christ does. How do you overcome your sin? By focusing upon Christ. By leaning into him, trusting in his accomplishment, and seeking not to overcome your sin, but seeking to serve him in righteousness. Because amazingly, as you focus upon Christ, and as you seek to serve him, again, what happens to the fruit? It just starts showing up. So this verse continues, well, this sentence continues, because Paul's back to run on land. Verse 12, and the father of circumcision to those who are not only, who not only are, if I could read, we'd be all set. To those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. This is why we call Abraham the father of the faithful. The mark in his flesh is secondary to the mark that is upon his heart. This is why Jesus could say things like John 8. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Why? Because of things like Hebrews 11. By faith, talking about Abraham, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now, here's the best part, Christian. You don't know anything about living in a world like that, do you? You wouldn't know anything about living in a world and going, this can't be it. This can't be the fulfillment. This, this is not what goodness and grace and righteousness looks like. And you would be right, because that's what Abraham saw when he looked at his world. And that's what Isaac saw when he looked at his world. And that's what Jacob saw when he looked at his world. And I got a really bad news for you. That's what David saw when he looked at his world. And that's what Solomon saw when he looked at his world. And that's what all of Israel saw when they looked at their world, because the kingdom is not come. This is one of the things that got the disciples all twisted up. Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Dude, no, (laughs) you missed it. That was never the kingdom. What was Israel supposed to be? The people of God, living by the law of God, seeking to serve and build up the kingdom of God. It's a picture of the work that God was always going to complete. What was the problem with that? Other than the fact that we misunderstood what it meant to be the people of God, and other than we misunderstood what it meant to live by the law of God, and other than the fact that we misunderstood who would dwell in the kingdom of God, we nailed it. Yeah, oops. (laughs) My bad. This again, Christian, why I forever tell you, make your life simple when you can. Summarize your law. How do I serve and honor God? in this place? How do I serve and honor God in this decision? How do I serve and honor God in this relationship? How do I serve and honor God in this job? How do I serve and honor God with this person? And amazingly, the work of the Spirit kicking you along will produce its fruit because you are seeking what? His kingdom and his righteousness. And the rest of life begins to fall into place. Now, I've warned you that this isn't the end of the thought. So I get to say, but wait, there's more. But you got to wait for it for next week. (laughs) Now, don't be depressed. Don't be upset. And here's why. 
Summarize up until this point. So this is what you file into your head for next week. You ready? What have we done? We've seen the gospel message as our salvation, that God is judging sin, and that sin is present in everyone. There's your Romans chapter 1, right? Knowledge of the law is no protection against sin. That was basically chapter 2. And the promises of God are for his people, and the people are those he is redeeming in Christ. There's the end of chapter 2 coming into chapter 3 and the beginnings of chapter 4. However, don't miss what you've been told with this section. Don't just see it in the grand picture. See it in its small picture. How comfortable are you in this world? Like with Abraham, I'm seeking a city whose builder is God. I don't fit. I don't want the things that they want. I don't seek after the righteousness that they seek after. I don't even define righteousness and the good things of the world the way that the world does. That's fine. Be an alien and a stranger in a strange place, as Peter would encourage you. But realize that while you don't fit into their world, you fit into God's. You have a home in his kingdom. You are a people, regardless of what the world says about you, regardless of what they think, regardless of their rejection. And this should be an encouragement and a strength as you go out into the world. You go, I can't. I can't stand apart. I know that. But by trusting in Christ and living for him, you already have. And when the strength is needed for you to stand apart in those moments, you will, as you trust in Christ and seek to serve him and build up his kingdom. Again, I haven't said this to you in a while, so this is your pop quiz time. When can you be faithful? Now. See, we get all hung up. What am I going to do then? I have no earthly idea. You know, what, you know what I can encourage you to do? Just be faithful now. Because when you're faithful now, and then five minutes from now, five minutes from then will be now, because you never get there, because there becomes here. See how this works? <laughs> There's no God like you. Sorry. <laughs> Think about the easy things. Now, I can't be twisted up. What am I going to do then? We do this. You've been a parent or been around kids for like more than five minutes. You've done this. What am I going to do when they're one? What am I going to do when they're five? What am I going to do when they're 10? Oh my goodness, they're going to leave the house. What am I going to do when they get married? <laughs> be faithful now. Don't, li- don't wish your world away. Don't try to plan your life away. Be faithful now. And when then becomes now, and you're worried about being faithful now, resting in Christ, seeking to build up his kingdom, then your decision will be easy. Because the choice will be laid out in front of you, and you will make it because you are his, and he is yours, and you are a part of his people. And the best part is, you didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. You didn't accomplish it, but he has granted it to you by his grace and mercy and said, you are mine. Now worship, serve, and trust, and know that he has accomplished and know that he will accomplish because this is who he is. This is what he does. And as you wish to be complete, you are only complete as you are resting in him. Let's pray.